Hello and welcome to the Super 70 Podcast, episode 11, The Gym. The Super 70 Podcast is a commentary meant to play along with the film we are discussing. You don't have to though, and can listen without watching anything. I would, however, recommend that you watch the film we were discussing before listening to the Super 70 Podcast. You can find this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or my website at www.thatdylandavis.com. I'm Dylan Davis. I will be using the brand spanking new Blu-ray Kino release of Buster Keaton's 1926 film, The General, released just last year on a double feature with The Three Ages. If you press play on the Blu-ray now, and if you're going to do the YouTube, do it now, and this podcast should sync with the rest of the film. With the general, we are almost starting at the beginning of cinema history. There's not too much before this, but what is before is important. Edison, the Millais brothers, Nickelodeons, the importance of editing, staging, all of that. Then there is, of course, D.W. Griffith's masterpiece, The Birth of a Nation, which, despite its blatant racism, is still regarded as one of the most important historical films from the early silent era. The General is a United Artist film. United Artists was founded in 1919 by D.W. Griffith, Charlie Chaplin, Mary Pickford, and Douglas Fairbanks with the intention of controlling their own interests rather than depending on commercial studios. It was seen as the first independent studio of the artists, for the artists, and by the artists. Making a buck, though, was hard. The studio was repeatedly bought, sold, and restructured over the next century. The current United Artist is a name-only successor to the original company, which was acquired by Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer in 1981. If you're interested in the ins and outs of that history, there's a pretty interesting Wikipedia page up on it. This is The General. With Buster proudly at the wheel. We open in a typical American town, The man is holding his horse back because he does not want it getting injured by the train. The train, then, is modern technology invading the old world. The locomotive is the reason why everyone switched from wood as fuel to coal. Buster Keaton plays Johnny, the engineer here, who we see has two loves in his life. The locomotive called the General is one, and the other being his fiancée. By 1915, the creative and financial process that made moving pictures had evolved into giant studios that were vertically integrated and controlled damn near everything. UA was founded because many people like Chaplin and Pickford felt stifled by the system and they wanted to strike out on their own with their own money and their own art. For the record, they failed. The company was up and running by 1919, and by 1920 they met their target of producing five movies a year. In fact, in 1920 they produced eight movies, and in 1921 they produced 11. 
These included the Mark of Zorro, Disraeli, the Three Musketeers, Je Accuse, and a host of Charlie Chaplin's films that included his character, The Tramp. Keaton repeats a gag here where he doesn't notice his fiancée behind him like he didn't notice the kids near the train. You'll see this again. These are small calculated gags meant to stair-step you up to the major gags which come later. By 1924, however, times were getting tough with the artists at the helm of UA. Griffith left UA and the partners hired Walter Skank, who had gotten to start working in the distribution business for Lowe's Theatres. Yes, that Lowe's Theatres, if you're here in the South, they're still around. And later, he started producing movies. Skank married Norma Talmadge, a famous actress, and brought her to United Artists. But he also brought his brother-in-law, Buster Keaton, who was married to Norman Talmadge's sister. Funny gag here showing his girlfriend a picture of him with his other girlfriend, the general. Keaton was a vaudeville star that followed his father, Joseph Keaton, around for his entire life up to this point. In fact, Joseph Keaton is in the general, as are other Keaton family members. Vaudeville had a tradition of nepotism that followed its productions into film. The gag here is that Buster can't get any alone time with his girlfriend, both the dad and the brother barge in after the kids were just shuffled away, and now it's time to go fight in the Civil War. This begs the question, why does the Civil War figure so prominently in early cinema? This was, after all, after the First World War, and there were plenty of topics from that conflict to write about. So why all the fuss with this and the birth of a nation and all the rest of it? Well, there's a couple of things going on here. The South is a huge market for films. It's one. The myth of the lost cause is a popular idea in culture. That's two. And we are dealing with what was, at this time, very recent memory. If you were 21 years old in 1865, that meant that you were 41 years old in 1885, and you were 61 years old in 1915, and in 1926 you would be 72. I don't know how many 72-year-olds were going to see movies in 1926, but this is an age in which there is no birth control, and most people were having five to eight kids. So by an exponent of five, if you had five kids, that meant that five kids apiece, then you would have 30 direct descendants that all heard you talk about the Civil War. More than this, the Civil War is profound in popular memory. This holds true to today. My grandfather fought in the Second World War. He died in 1994. But I still remember him, and I still remember his stories about the war, and I know from school how the war shaped our modern life. This would be the same in 1926 about the Civil War. The historian Shelby Foote said once that the war made this country, good or evil, what it is today. And I think there is truth to that. It's not that the war was popular, but that the war was in popular memory. The North wants to remember it for the great moral crusade they accomplished, and the South wants to remember it so they can hold it over the North and everyone else with a bullshit woe is me attitude. Look how crisp this image is. I don't know if this has been restored or what, but it looks fantastic. Even the version on YouTube looks great, which I'm using for this one. We have our first plot device, which is Buster getting turned down from the army because his skills as an engineer are much more valuable to his country than being used as cannon fodder. 
However, he's never told this, which is odd. Usually when you're ejected from the army, you're told why, but whatever. He is, of course, insulted because, let's face it, his girlfriend will never put out unless he joins up and gets shot. The carryover from the previous scene is his future father-in-law and brother-in-law do not see him join up because he jumps the queue and is blocked by much bigger men. So, first, he doesn't see the kids. Then he doesn't see his girlfriend. Then his girl's family doesn't see him. So, constantly in this film, you're missing something. He almost goes by an entire Confederate army at one point. In this shot, you can see the different size of bottles in the background. And this mimics the different sizes of men that are joining the army. Including Buster. Before we get too far into this, we should perhaps revisit the story of the general, the real general, which was a real locomotive that was used in the Confederate Army during the Civil War. And early on in the war, and in April of 1862, when the war was just barely a year old, the Union Army was scrambling to find a cohesive military policy against the South, and part of this was the occupation of the so-called border states. Tennessee was considered a border state. It was still in the Union, but it was allowed to keep slavery, for example, and though it sent troops to both sides of the war, it was occupied by the Union Army for most of the war. The key to the Ohio River Valley and the Mississippi River Valleys from the south was the railroad that ran out of Atlanta and connected with Tennessee, and it turned west at Chattanooga to Memphis. There was no way the Union Army had the manpower or skill at that time to march down that railroad to Atlanta like it did later, but it could sabotage the railroad itself. And if it could pull this off, then it would help the Union Army in Tennessee quite a bit. They wouldn't be as harassed by the rebels if that railway was down. So this civilian named James Andrews, he put the idea forward to some generals to lead a group of Union Army soldiers incognito to Atlanta and hijack a locomotive. And on the way back, they would tear up as much of the railroad track as they could. This started in the real town of Big Shanty, which you'll also see on the map the Union generals are going to refer to pretty soon. The raid was a success, but most everyone who was involved in the raid, and it was upwards of a dozen people, they were all caught within two weeks of ditching the train just south of Chattanooga. Most of them were shot on sight as spies or saboteurs. The problematic role Keaton is playing here is very intentional. His name is, after all, Johnny Gray. And he is, at the end, finally admitted into the Confederate Army. But if you watch carefully, he's actually an unwitting accomplice until the last five minutes. He bumbles his way through the plot, and this is not a drama or a hero tale. If he is a hero, then he's an accidental hero. And should we be rooting for him as a rebel, as someone who fought for the preservation of slavery? These were questions that were not really asked at the time. Hollywood has more of a fascination with the South because it lost the war, and in a very real sense, it was underdog of that war. It never had a chance to win a lot of people's opinions, and so to Hollywood, the South is very desirable as an image to develop, as one to sell, as a concept to flesh out. But now, of course, you couldn't just do something like this so blithely. You would have to excuse it in some way. There was that movie with Tobey Maguire called Ride with the Devil where it's okay to have a slave and you just magically let him go free after the war, but I can't live in the North, so I'll just go West. And Cold Mountain with Jude Law and Nicole Kidman completely sidesteps the issue. 
So in this way, these issues, they don't change. It's been 90-something years, and that issue has not gone away. And it's just easier to not address it. Now, you're about to witness one of the most amazing things in this film. One of three draw-jopping tricks. When Keaton sits on a wheel arm of this train and unwittingly rides it to the barn house. Here. Now take a look at this gag. This is amazing. No ropes, no guidelines. It's just him. And at the end there, he looks around at the last second to notice what was going on. He's so struck by the fact that he's been jilted by his love that he didn't notice the train was moving. That's on the surface, and that's the comedy. And then there's Keaton's deadpan delivery, which we'll get to in a minute. But let's all take a breath and recognize that he could have been killed doing that. One wrong move, and he could have fallen, and it could have torn his body up live on camera. Chunks of flesh and fresh blood on the mangled corpse. The days before safety in Hollywood. But let's try to wrap up a couple of things before too long. We'll talk about Keaton's physique in a minute. Here's the generals talking about the proposed great train. And at the end... this really comes into play. So in these scenes, we're presented with this assumption that Johnny is a coward because he didn't go to the enlistment office, but he did. And the circumstances were that he was not told he was too valuable to serve on the front line. So he had nothing to say that made sense to his in-laws who signed up immediately. And the whole time you're not questioning the morality of Johnny trying to sign up or the fact that his future in-law signed up and fought for slavery. So here's the genesis of the plot. The civilian spy and Union general planning their attack on the Chattanooga line. Complete with a map so that you'll understand the geography of what is happening for the rest of the film. Very smart. Now, it seems here that we skip forward some time because Johnny's future father-in-law is wounded. And so we know that he's been in a battle. And she's very teary. And chronology comes important play here because the southern states started leaving after Lincoln's election, which is in November 1860, and that is when Johnny tries to enlist and fails. Look at her, stare at Johnny in the next couple of seconds, and then look at her brother's broken wing. It's as if to say that she's upset that her loved one is not hurt. That's pretty fucked up. Anyway, hostilities didn't break out in the Civil War until Fort Sumter surrendered in April 1861, and there were no casualties in that battle. So this could be after Bull Run, which is July 1861. That's really the earliest conflict he could have been wounded at all. And so Johnny is going to take his girlfriend on the general to see her wounded father-in-law. And Marietta, for those who don't know, is outside Atlanta, just as an aside. Back in these days, the, in the days of rail, especially in the early days of rail, the train stopped at certain times to let people off, and they would get something to eat at a station and use the restrooms, etc., because none of that was on the train. In the early days of rail, you did not eat on the rail, and you did not use the restroom on the rail. There was no restroom, unless you were rich enough 
to have a caboose to yourself, and that would mean that you own the rail or something like that. That's why everyone got off the train and then just headed into the station. The railroads usually owned all of the stations and all of the land around it and the hotels and everything else that you laid your eyes on. So, Annabelle gets back on. She went to look for something and the damn Yankees took over the train and they're headed for Chattanooga with a hostage. Johnny's washing his hands. He's taking a look and they're still white. And the next shot, and he sees... The train is leaving and he's got to do something because they're stealing his train and his girlfriend on it, his two most prized possessions. Look how enthusiastic he is running after the train as if he truly believes he can catch it. And that goes to Keaton's deadpan delivery. If you look at the reviews of Keaton when he was working, you'll find that a lot of film critics at the time did not think that he was a very good actor, despite the fact that he was a very popular movie star. And the number one reason why he was not liked is because of this deadpan delivery he used. When he's on the railroad arm, you can see it quite well. He just looks emotionless, or I guess you could say stoic. He looks very stoic, and critics did not like that at all. They really gave him hell for that, but it does heighten the comedy of the situation. I'm not an expert on silent films or 20s films, but I'm sure that would be any different than what Chaplin was doing. So I'm not sure that it would be fair or unfair, but I've seen a fair amount of Chaplin's work. And he plays the straight guy in a funny suit. And I think that's because Chaplin didn't have a silly partner to go up against like Laurel and Hardy and Abbott, Costello. Chaplin was the straight guy. And the Tramp's clothes are really the silly guy. Kind of like having an all-in-one gig. Well, Keaton didn't have that. He was straight, and there was no silly sidekick to bounce all of his straight jibes off, and his costumes were never crazy. I think maybe that was why he was not well-liked by critics. It may be why he was not well-liked as Chaplin, though I don't know how you would ever be able to prove that. Keaton was a, a former co-star to Fatty Arbuckle, who was a silly comedian who couldn't play anything straight, and he was an enormously popular man until he got caught up in a scandal that burst not too much before The General came out. But that's another story. But what the hell. I'll go over it briefly since it kind of plays into why Keaton left MGM and went to UA. See, Fatty Arbuckle was having a party at a hotel in San Francisco and there was booze at the hotel and remember this is the early 20s and there was prohibition still you weren't allowed to have booze but of course we all know how that worked out so Fatty was holding a party and this girl comes up to the party and she drinks some of the stuff which is from God knows where and it was one of those huge problems during prohibition you, know, you don't know who's making this booze or how long it was fermented or what's in it or anything and a lot of people died because the booze wasn't made right and their kidneys or liver or whatever shot down or they got alcohol poisoning or whatever. And unfortunately, that's what happened to this girl. And she was really young and people just got it into their heads that Fatty strangled her in the middle of some crazed sex act while he was zonked out of his head. And even though he was acquitted, it ruined his career. So Keaton had to leave Fatty 
because he was so radioactive and United Artists scooped him up, like I said, because it was, it was in the family. This sequence reminds me of planes, trains, and automobiles. Johnny is just so damn determined to chase the train. He runs, he uses the rail rotter that jumps the track because the Yankees messed it up. So he uses the stupid, unbelievable French bicycle, which I'm sure nobody used at all back then. That doesn't off-road so well. Then he manages to hijack a train called the Texas, and he's going to use the Texas to catch up to the general with a cannon. You could write a paper, and I'm sure someone has already done this, on the meaning of wood in this film. All throughout this film you see wood. The railroad ties, the fuel for the railroad, the intertidal cards have wood finishings on them. He catches wood, they stand in buildings made of wood, he throws wood, sets wood on fire, manipulates wood, all we all know this is a, a wood world, but there's an astounding amount of wood and timber in this film. And this might be the appropriate time since he's about to be performing some of these tricks to bring up the fact that Keaton was an acrobat. You can't really see his physique here, but in a lot of his other films, particularly in our hospitality, you can see his biceps and his figure a whole lot better. And he was absolutely ripped very fit. When his career started tanking, he very quickly lost this, and in his later life he started drinking heavily and his figure was totally gone. So he didn't age fit like some others like uh, Douglas Fairbanks or James Cagney, Cagney. As the movie goes, and as you watch this seemingly boundless energy, just keep in mind that this was not the norm. Movie stars are hired then and now to look pretty not to be fit. So if you are pretty, it is a bonus to be fit. Just look at Brad Pitt in Fury. But this is a movie made just after the Edwardian time is over. People are still rather Victorian in their attitudes. And of course, the Civil War was a Victorian conflict, so you obviously are not going to bandy about like that all the time. That's how he, he got in. He has more than great form he has tremendous balance and he can do amazing things with his body much like Chaplin could who was not really a competitor but was more like just another more popular comedian of course but they shared physicality Chaplin was the superstar and you can tell by the budgets of these pictures alone who was the superstar Chaplin's budgets were much higher sometimes 10 times higher than Keaton's and the pull they had in the box office was equal to or greater than Keaton's films. The idea that Keaton's films have survived, that they have flourished in the wake of Chaplin, says a lot for their power and their durability. Keaton's films have made a lot of money, and the general was by far his most expensive, but they weren't the huge blockbusters that Chaplin was pulling off every 18 months or so. And there's a huge gap there in earning power. This scene is unreal. And this shot coming up is crazy. How many times did they practice this? First, he loads it shallow, and it lands in the engine room. And we're guessing he's lucky he didn't blow up the engine. And then the cannon drops, and we're all worried, but then the train skews and nearly blows up the general. These shots that are parallel to the Texas are, of course, on sightings. For those of you who are not trained people, a 
Siding is a second track that parallels the first track. It can go on for a mile or so. Keaton used the same siding multiple times, so if you look in the background, you can sometimes see the same features over and over again. And he would just back up the train and retake the shot. Moving at that speed, you wouldn't have a lot of time, mind you. You just have to get the shot and move on. And this film took months to shoot. They shot it up in uh, Oregon, far outside of Portland. Look at that, right on the cow catcher. And here comes the shot. And he just clears the Texas, and that reminds me of a cat falling off a bed and then looking up as if to say, I meant to do that. The entire scene of him on the cow catcher is just absolutely death-defying. It's a Cirque du Soleil. There are no special effects here. It's just him on that thing, holding on the best he can. And now he's presented with another problem. We're still in the first chase. We passed that hill in the background about three times already, and I think we'll pass it a few more times. But now... They cut away there, but watch the catcher make contact. That's dangerous, as anyone who works in rail will tell you. And take a look at this shot as it goes back and forth between the Yankees chopping their way through the door and Keaton as he follows. And this is a live shot, no back screen. He's hopped off to change the siding and he's going to flip the switch so he can continue to chase the journal. Then we'll go back to the camera inside the car with the men chopping away and you can see the focus on the camera keeps the outside together despite the great difference in lighting. Now just like before when he didn't notice the kids behind him at the station and at his girlfriend's house, he doesn't notice the train car is still in front of him and he's done nothing to help his own cause. He's worked all that for nothing. That shot there is obviously a, a backstring when, when you see it. This one. Complete backstring. And this is about the closest medium shot that you can get. There are no close-ups in this film. Very weird, very strange, but there's a purpose behind that. So you saw that, that shot, the shot in a cargo car, and now you see the background here and in the engine, and that's all live background there. And the joke here is that he turns away, the car is derailed, and he turns back and he's gone, and he's still deadpanning it. And you see the expression on his face, and it's hysterically funny, and, and a lot of critics just, they didn't get it at all. Look at this. Almost into the tree stumps. And how many times did they do that? Here's the backdrop again. Where's the train? It's gone. Wait, what happened? See, this is exactly why Keaton was so famous. He's trying to understand it. Anyone else, that would be a huge, huge punchline. The sequence coming is perhaps the most famous of the film. It's not just one of the most famous in the general, but in all of movie history. And it's, it's usually the shot used to display the general on whatever you're reading or watching or whatever. It's on the cover of the DVD. And he's climbing out on this cow catcher to pick it up and move these wooden beams. And I'm sure these beams are just painted foam. They have to be. And again, you see him here in one false move, and he's dead. And if his foot gets caught behind the railroad tie, he's dead. And he gets pulled under the train, and stuff like that did happen. Watch this. Boom goes the dynamite. Unbelievable. But accidents did happen in the movies. An extra lost her legs during the production of 
Dr. Zhivago. The trains are dangerous. It's amazing that he didn't get killed. And I don't know if that is a stunt woman there, but I do know that Keaton hired a sister to do stunts. She was a stunt woman in Hollywood, one of the first. But I don't know if she's in the general or, or not. And then, of course, you come up to just watch this balancing act with this live shot. You can't stop trains on a dime, but look at this. Manages to do that. And here, of course, we have another you know, I'm not looking gag. Right? Coming here. And by now, this kind of reminds me of Silver Streak with Gene Wilder and Richard Pryor, where Every time Gene Wilder gets thrown off the train, he says, Son of a bitch! And everyone laughs. There, see? Doesn't notice. And I think this is the 1925 equivalent of that. In these shots of Keaton in the back of the train, I just want to try to dissect this a bit. He's, he's in the locomotive, so there's not a huge range of places that you can put the camera, not like today. One of the criticisms of the film is that these shots are rather far away and boring and we'll get to that as we go along but the shots of him in the back working on the engine and throwing in the wood and watch in the background you'll see the corners of the shot there's no screen in the background right here this train is moving this means the camera is mounted probably on the wood pile where Keaton is acting here how did they do this was the engine going by itself meaning Keaton is piloting is there an engineer behind the camera that jumps up when someone yells cut? Is the train being pulled or pushed? What's going on behind the scenes? And I don't think that we'll ever know. Pushing a car on fire with a locomotive is asking for an explosion. They shot this movie with three trains and they totaled one of them. It's amazing nobody died with as many fires and moving parts as there are in this film. Look at that, live background, through the smoke. No modern movie set would allow that. If you check out this little act he does here where he clumsily sits first in the water tank and then on it, it's a short bit which people would laugh at. But then today we would just nod and smile. And now we're going to get back to the retreating Confederate Army, which has tried to advance on Chattanooga and has been beaten back into a retreat. And this looks like something is going on in the background, almost literally in the background, but in fact it, it becomes pretty integral to the film as the reels go by. More wood. This army is in retreat and the Union army is right on its ass and you're gonna see them in a minute and you can contrast the two armies. The Confederates are running wildly through the country in a very disorganized fashion. Oh my God, look at that shot. Buster passing right into the foreground. I'm gonna mention this several more times. Take a look at this. No, I don't notice that army behind me. It's very, this military unit is very possibly the same extras dressed up in blue uniforms and then later, and they're going to look very professional like they know what they're doing and all of that, but it's chaos now. And this becomes important later because in effect, Johnny's going to be behind enemy lines and at the end of the film, he's going to not only go through the, through the lines on the same track, but he's going to rally the men to him and lead them to a successful battle. Again, unwittingly or unknowingly against the Union and the South is going to win the battle. 
Now, by all intents and purposes, this is not what happened. The story of the General Locomotive is a story that the North tells their kids, not the South. It's a Yankee tale about a Yankee raid that is successful for the North. It is not a point of Southern pride, but Keaton will turn it on its head and he will make it into something the South can celebrate. Uh, to the point to where after this film, fewer people will understand that this is a farce, that the story is in fact embarrassing to the South. And there are some in the South that will think that this locomotive aside, that this, this battle did take place and they did win out over the Union and push them back to Chattanooga. The only part that is true in all of this is that it took another two years for General Ulysses S. Grant and General William Tecumseh Sherman to push the Confederates out of Tennessee in northern Georgia. And I've never really fully understood why the South would want to be proud of this story in particular since eventually not only did they lose Chatt Chattanooga, but they lost all of Georgia. And in a very well-known incident, General Sherman would burn the city of Atlanta to the ground and then cut a swath through Georgia that looked like no man's land for decades. Glorifying the South does not make sense to me, even though I'm from the South. Not then, not now, and I know that we have modern sensibilities and all of that, but I still just don't get it. Keaton could have done the same film with the Union winning, and it would have been just as great. Just no one in the South would have gone to see it, probably, and we can see why United Artists would have been worried about that. And also remember, at this time, the mid-1920s, the Ku Klux Klan is on the ascendant. And they're signing people up by the millions, and by the 1930s, things were going to get real bad in the South regarding civil rights. Not that they were ever good to begin with. So you can also see in Keaton the birth of Looney Tunes, particularly in this sequence, we just saw when he was using the axe and first the blade struck and then the blade flew off and this is like watching a, a human cartoon. And later on he's going to throw those huge timbers into and over the train and all that reminds me of is Wile E. Coyote and Roadrunner. Watch this scene, how this scene plays out and watch now how the gags pretty much drop off at this point and it's a while before they come back in the Tour de Force like we've seen since we left and that's really because we have two directors and this is very important to remember that this is Keaton's film but he's not directing all of it Clyde Bruckman is the director hired to film the general Keaton is there to plan all of the gags and all that was usually done on set Bruckman is the guy who stages all the setups like the general's meetings and the armies and sweeping back and forth across the screen and Bruckman was a pretty good director he directed only one movie before the general but he did a lot of films after about 19 according to IMDB and you see the two natures of this film in pretty stark terms overall. There's a bunch of gags in a row, and then there's a bunch of drama in a row. And it pretty much follows whether or not he's on the train. And even when he's on the train, you'll see the drama off the track, and then you'll see the gags on the track. And that's because, again, there are these two directors hired to do very different things in this film. And that was the expectation. That was what happened on most Keaton movies, especially at UA. Even on a beach party. It, it was true. You know, Buster, do whatever you want, so that's why you have a different tone all of a sudden here. Now, I want to emphasize, even as you watch this dramatic shift right now, that I don't mean to insinuate that because this is a Keaton film that he was in charge of the collaboration. I don't think that he was. I would lean towards Bruckman for that role. It's important to remember that even though this was made under Buster Keaton Productions, that Keaton did not own any shares 
in this company that had his name on it. He was an employee of his own company, and the company belonged to Joseph Skank. Keaton may have written these movies, he may have acted in them, he may have planned them, he may have edited them, but they were all Skank's movies as far as the law was concerned. Skank owned the company and he owned Keaton's talents. He was a gun for hire. Peter Kramer is the author of a book on the general of the same name, and he says that Buster Keaton Productions put out six films. Seven Chances, Go West, Battling Butler, The General, College, and Steamboat Bill Jr. For these, he was paid about $1,000 a week, plus 25% of the combined net profits. And Kramer says that Keaton made about 27000 off those six films. This was when the average working man was making about 1200 a year, but Norma Talmadge made between ten and 30000 a week, just to give you an idea of the difference. If you look at the general, on the right-hand side of the table, you'll see Keaton's older brother, Joe. Man, I thought it'd be easy doing this and recording a commentary for a silent film that's only what 78 minutes long but as it turns out this is one of the most difficult ones to do so Annabelle is played by Marion Mack who like a lot of people in Hollywood changed her name she was born Joey Marion McCreary and she began her working career for Mack Senate as one of his bathing girls scandalous yes I was unable to find out if she changed her name to Mac as a result of that, like many other actors did, Gig Young being one of them. But she was in a few movies before the general under her own name, but it was Mary of the movies when the name Marion Mac stuck, and it was how she was known for the rest of her career. By the time the general came out, she was quite famous, and most people in the audience would know who she was. She also made a career for herself behind the camera as well. She went on for several years as a screenwriter, and though she was just a few credits to her name, she's known to have impressed all of Hollywood with her gift of story structuring. For decades, she was a script doctor and fixed countless scripts before filming was committed, or sometimes after. When the general turned 50, she went on a tour with the film for a retrospective anniversary. I bring her up now because by now that you see that Annabelle is one of three parts of the film it's Johnny the general and Annabelle and the general largely rotates through all three of these characters and their importance Johnny the general and Annabelle everything else is sidelined Keaton is particularly stone-faced in the scene which is the usual but it's funny because he's with his girlfriend you think that he wouldn't be. But he did give some exaggerated facial expressions when he did Fatty Arbuckle films, but not here. And like I said before, his critics and the audiences didn't particularly go for Keaton films, as much as Chaplin's, I should say. And as I said before, this, this may have hurt the revenue of the film since there was such a clear disparity between Keaton's films and Chaplin's films, or even, say, Douglas Fairbanks films. Films of that time. All right, now, 
As we go through the scene, I want you to look at the shot composition. And in particular, I want you to see the distance Brockman or Keaton is putting the subject from the camera. And remember, Brockman is supposed to do the drama and Keaton is supposed to do the stunt. So you can kind of distinguish who directed what when you watch the films for distance. When Brockman is directing the drama, you see things start to close in, but never too far. And they're always farther away than a lot of other movies from the same time frame. Remember, this is 10 years after Birth of a Nation, so everyone's doing close-ups and the audience was used to them by now. So to not have close-ups in this film is interesting. It definitely stands out. I don't think that there is one true close-up in this whole film, but when you see Keaton doing gags and stunts, you'll see the camera is way, way back, take the troops in the middle in the end when the Confederates are retreating and so forth. And that just begs for close-ups and to show emotional commitment of the troops and the soldiers. And nope, no close-ups. You see them cross almost in the background. And many times the train is in the foreground and they are way the hell out there. And Keaton has these huge, huge shots. You see the train just disappear in the distance and people come streaming out on the street. Even the train wreck is, is way, way back. These long shots do have a purpose. For starters, you can see everything. You can get your bang for your buck. You don't lose too much interest because there's no close-up shots. Because they are way, way back, you can see, for example, that there are no special effects or visual effects, and that means a lot to many people. When the camera is on the train, it is so far back that you see the battles or the fights in the engine compartment, and you can clearly see stuff on the peripheral moving. The train is moving. They put the camera on the woodpile sometimes, and you can tell that obviously the train is moving. And don't forget, you've seen the map at the beginning of the movie and you know how everything is laid out. So you have these images in distance, like the bridges for example, and it gives you a strong place in your mind as to what's happening as the train heads towards and later away from Chattanooga. And in that vein, you know that what that reminds me of, Mel Gibson's film Apocalypto. And that's a very amazing and underrated film that does not get a whole lot of credit. And if you watch it, you'll see a very similar chain of events as in the general, kidnapping, an escape, tracing back steps, and a battle at the end. It's all split up by uh, an overnight shot. It's very, very cool. So separating all of it, almost separating this movie in the middle is, is the night scene and this bumbling around the bear trap. And you'll see some, some inspiration here when Johnny starts jacking with his shoe on the ground. And Keaton was a genius when it came to the natural environment. And Chaplin was all about props. He needed props to do anything and the greatest example of that is, is when he was playing with the globe and the great dictator and look at the tramp and you'll see that Chaplin is covered with props his hat is a prop his shoes are a prop even Groucho Marx lived on props his mustache was a prop he had a cigar just like Chaplin but Keaton has a way an eye I guess you could call it that could hunt out the gags in a scene with what was already there or naturally around there made sense that was there the wood the bear trap and although the movie in it he's he's getting into trouble seemingly with nothing when he sits on the locomotive and it moves him around for instance it's rather uh, innocuous and here yes there was a bear trap but if you if you watch him reacting to the entire environment and the props he he does tend to be quite simple and not costume based the axe, for example, and then later the sword, right? He's not wearing his, his props. He has no visual shtick. And here there's this endearing moment between the two of, two of them. 
And it's pretty much all downhill from here. You can see the symmetry of the script and the film as a whole. Most films have the traditional three acts or one, two, three punch. The general doesn't. It's more like it's in two parts, almost right down the middle. And in this way, it's a lot like Stanley Kubrick's movies. The one that's most famously structured in this way is Full Metal Jacket when you spend the first half of the film on Paris Island and the second half in Vietnam. But The Shining is also in two halves. Barry Lyndon, Clockwork Orange. There's a before and an after. And Johnny rescuing Annabelle is where we mark the half in the general. And it's not because he's gone near to Chattanooga and now he's gone back, obviously. It's structured that way, but that's not the whole point. It's really centered around how Johnny turns Annabelle from never wanting to see him again until he's in uniform, mind you, and look at him now, he's in uniform, to being relieved to see him. He rescues her, and now she's just about smitten with him. She's hugging his shoulders in the rain. Beautiful shot order here. The couple, the army, the train. Johnny has an idea. I'll take the girl, and we'll get out of here the way I came in. Now, instead of chasing after the train and being a kind of aggressor, Johnny is now going to be the escape artist. In the age of Harry Houdini, he's going to be the one to make the chase, and we'll see the Union chase after him like mad dogs, almost as fervently as he chased after them. Keep in mind, though, that none of this would have happened if Annabelle wasn't kidnapped, or if they had just thrown her off the train. Everything thereafter would not have happened, including the battle at the end, which the South wins. Now here's a rather hilarious routine in which Johnny puts Annabelle in a sack, possibly a potato sack or something, in a, an attempt to sneak her onto the general and get her out. And every time I watch this, I think about Raiders of the Lost Ark. I've never read up on Spielberg, believe it or not, which I guess is kind of sad. So I don't know if he's ever seen the general or not I would imagine so because of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade and the train sequence in that film and I just guess that he's seen it because of how popular this movie is in film circles but anyway I'm getting off track this this whole thing in the potato sack or the mail sack or whatever it is it reminds me of when Marion was put into the wicker basket in Raiders and the whole shell game that Indy has to go through to get her when you see Johnny start searching for the bags in the caboose, that's when it kicks in for me. But that's just a guess. I just recently watched an interview with Orson Welles, whom I know a lot of you probably think is overrated. He was a huge fan of Keaton's, by the way, and he was talking about how much he hated homages. He thought that they were overused and useless and proof that you didn't have any ideas left. I'd hate to think that Spielberg tried an homage and that is the result of not having any ideas. I think that he does very well to use others' ideas. Film is a collaborative art, but you still have to have an author to make these types of decisions. And I love Orson Welles, but I disagree with his point on homages. If this potato sack puts Marion in a wicker basket, that's a fine homage to me. And on that train, you should check out Keaton's short work, the Rail Rotter, which is on YouTube. It's pretty good, and it's in color. And I think it's full of homages to this movie, and I think all that is fine. Some of you might think that an homage is just stealing, and, and I think that's a fair criticism. Clyde Bruckman actually had a tough job 
getting work in Hollywood because many studios thought that he was stealing gags from his works with Keaton. But I would hazard to say that the difference between an homage and stealing something from a movie is whether or not the device used aids in telling the story. If you're just adding it, then well, that's probably stealing. If it's actually helping you tell a story, then I think that's an homage. And the storytelling is the point here. That's the whole point, telling a story. The minute a film stops telling a story, then you know it's off track. As proof, I enter the entire filmography of Paul Thomas Anderson as evidence. This card is hysterical. I will get that spy before he reaches the southern lines. You follow with the supply trains as planned. That's like Miss Piggy asking Diana Rigg in the Great Muppet Caper why she's telling her all of this stuff. Exposition for the script, of course. Okay, buckle in. We're going to have about 30 minutes to go, and as the end nears, some really amazing things go on, and the cutting actually picks up pace. And by the way, there's plenty of books on Buster Keaton. I recommend The Persistence of Comedy by Imogen Sarah Smith. That's the one that I read because it's on Kindle Unlimited. The Tempest in a Flat Hat by Edward McPherson. He did a series of interviews edited by Kevin W. Sweeney that are pretty interesting. How to Set Up a Gag and so forth. He wrote an autobiography called My Wonderful World of Slapstick. And all of these have good ratings on Amazon, by the way. But the highest rated one is Buster Keaton Remembered. And you can find it on Amazon along with my books. In the next couple of shots, you can see the distance shots that I referred to earlier versus the medium shots that you previously saw when he was breaking her out of the headquarters. And then they were getting on board the train. This one is particularly very good. Remember that they're using the same siding and probably just reversed the trains or hooked the engine opposite and went over the same siding over and over again. You can see the same terrain in the background. Remember beforehand when we were going to Chattanooga, we were moving the trains right to left on screen. And now that we're going back from Chattanooga to Atlanta, we're moving on the screen from left to right. Now we're about 10 minutes away from the train wreck. Spoilers. The General did not do that well at the box office, as I've said before, but luckily for the following generations, we don't carry that contemporary baggage with us when we watch older movies. I had no idea Cleopatra was a flop until the DVD came out with all the extras on the bonus disc. I loved Richard Burton and I thought it was a great movie. No one cares, really. I'm sure showgirls will still suck in 60 years, but we all run the risk of it being considered ahead of its time. But the general did not impress audiences. And it really did not impress Skank. And as a result, Keaton lost this fantastic position at United Artist, and he had to take a much lower-paying job at MGM. The film, this film, The General, or rather the copyrights of The General, were screwed up, much like It's a Wonderful Life was, and it entered the public domain in the 1950s. In effect, what this means is if you own a film reel of The General, then that copy belongs to you. You can do with it what you want. 
You can transfer that to DVD if you want and make money, like Kino did. Lots of people do this. Chimes of Midnight, for example, has had the copyright screwed up in several Latin American countries. So you can see copies of it with Portuguese subtitles on Amazon sometimes. But don't buy that. It's on Criterion, so you don't need to. We'll get to that one eventually. But Luckily for us, Kino got a hold of a copy and issued a Blu-ray, which looks great. And that's the version that's on YouTube. I love Kino. Got a bunch of their stuff. They've done magic on the silent era. Different from the others, for instance, is, is pretty awesome. Now, I'm convinced that all of these pieces of lumber are foam, and Keaton was notoriously strong, but I don't think that he could wield that much weight and just throw those beams around like that. And this is a good shot that shows the peripheral view that I've noted before. If you look at this one, it, it can't be that easy to stop a train on a dime. And all these little acts of sabotage are great. I read a book on the American Civil War that talked about how both sides sabotage trains and they would steal track or start fires to warp the steel or twist the steel so it could not be used anymore. Really ingenious stuff. And the general feeling in this is that Keaton was out of control on this one. That's the historiography. He hired something like 1,500 people in Cottage Grove, Oregon, where the general was shot. And that's probably over double what you would hire today for a film if you left out digital effects. There were a lot of extras, but he also hired something like 500 Oregon State National Guardsmen for the battle scenes. Supposedly, Keaton was knocked unconscious in one of these scenes, and one of the days shooting was canceled. Someone was, someone on set was shot in the face with a blank. A train ran over someone's foot, which caused a lawsuit. The firewood used for the engine caught fire several times. And there were some passing haystacks once that caught fire, and those fires got so bad that it filled the valley where they were shooting. And it filled up with smoke, and they had to go back to Los Angeles for a break in shooting. And anyone will tell you, that's expensive crazy. And at the end of shooting, they had an astounding 200,000 feet of celluloid for the film, which is about double what you should have for a two-hour movie. The shot of Johnny cutting down the back wall of the train, again, another astounding shot. If you did any of that today, it would be CGI. Just look at Fast and Furious 7. And there is something else going on here, not just in this frame, but pretty much everything in the general, but particularly in the portraits that you see when Johnny was looking straight ahead and all of Buster's straight-faced forward shots, right? Here's another shot of them stopping the train as if it were a car. I, I know that I can't be the first person to say this, but it reminds me a lot, particularly the portraits, they remind me a lot of uh, Matthew Brady's famous photographs of the Civil War. And you look at what Buster does here, just his balance and everything, and I swear that you... It just looks like he's been doing this forever. But anyway, the, the still shots, the photography, particularly the one on the train with the fake background, it looks a lot like Matthew Brady's photography. And since this is our first silent film, I will address the silence for a moment. First of all, silent films were never shown silently. There was always a piano or an organ or some sort of musical accompaniment usually chosen by the distribution company, and if the studio owned the distribution company, then they controlled how it was displayed. Otherwise, they would have to rely on a contract. 
Anyway, someone would play the music live, and if you were in a big city, the live performance might be a full orchestra, if the theater was big enough and the film big enough to justify that. As time went on for the cheaper films, acetate Victrolas were used to accompany the film to theaters and distribution. These could be used in smaller theaters, but because of the amplification problem, you just simply couldn't have a large theater with that. You couldn't amplify records loud enough to fill a theater in those days. All drama would be emphasized by the music, so for instance, when Annabelle gets doused with the water in this stream, the music would increase in volume and probably beats, etc., just like music is done in modern theaters. So none of that has really changed. They didn't just play random music or whatever was lying around. It was very specific, and it was time to make the film have as much of an impact as possible, just like today. The history of getting the music to sync and how that was put onto the film and to the side of the frame and the struggle of doing that over the next three to five decades is extremely fascinating. And I'm not going to go into it all because I want to stay on topic here, but it's all very well worth it if you love cinema and understand it. Look at them here and they start to get upset at her and there's something sinister in this Union General's handlebar mustache there. And it was very popular during the Civil War. There was a general named Ambrose Burnside who wore those and he became a popular general for a time and he replaced uh, General George McClellan and so his picture was in the paper and people started to wear their sideburns like that and that's how you get the word sideburns from General Burnside. She's trying to housekeep throughout the broom. They start stepping on each other's toes. It's like they're already married. And of course you can look at those gender roles and criticize them all you want but please remember this is a comedy and like most comedy it plays off to stereotypes. And if you don't believe me, then just watch any Adam Sandler film. And if you're looking for any sense in this film, anywhere, including gender roles, th there isn't any. And that's unintentional. They thought it made sense at the time, but it kind of fits now. As we can't make sense of a lot of what's going on in general. This film is filled with nonsense. You see Johnny race after the train when it's stolen. And really, do you think he's going to catch it? Because I'm pretty sure that he's not. And then you see him hook up the cannon onto the train. And really, do you expect him to use the cannon? How's he going to use it? He almost kills himself with it. And it's the same at the end of the film when he's placed with the artillery around. And the barrel points up before going off. And at the end, and he's promoted to lieutenant. You're sort of wondering, well, why? So there's a lot of nonsense in this film. And a lot can be dismissed. And generally speaking, you see more sense in a Chaplin film. Man, he's so different than his previous films. I just watched a whack of Roscoe Arbuckle films, and they're so different than what Buster did later. Even his three films prior to this are way, way down in scope. They're all shot on sets. It looks like a lot of them are indoors. These are just a lot more grand in the scope. The landscapes are blowing me away. Even films like The Navigator and Sherlock Jr. are pretty much in a bottle if you get my meaning. Meaning. Seven Chances has a lot of landscapes, but the interaction is just so different. There's nothing like what you get in a background here. It's funny being chased downhill by boulders and everything, but the scope of the general is just huge. And there's a huge risk here. This is a comedy after all crossed with a historical epic. 
Not a lot of people understood that. Some people were even turned off that such a serious topic as the Civil War was now something to laugh at. That offended them. Then, of course, people die in film. People are shot. People are on trains that go into ravines. And we're quite used to people dying in comedies today. As comedy producers even name comedies after dead people. Things to do in Denver when you're dead. But back then, some people thought all of that was an extremely bad taste. We talked about the silent age before, and it's also important to remember that the age of sound had a huge effect on Keaton's life. No one could really afford to produce the kinds of films that Keaton wanted to do anymore. The technology of sound made it increasingly impossible for studios to carry out that kind of bill anyway. And You can't record talkies outside, so no more grand landscapes for Keaton. Or for anyone, not for a while, not until that problem was solved. And that would take a while. Like the 1970s. And, and even not then, everything was just dubbed. Look at all of Bruce Lee's movies. Check out this tit for tat. Again, a lot of these stunt guys could have been killed. Hanging off that cow catcher. And now conveniently they're on the siding while Johnny just zooms right past them. So there's a huge disconnect between the silent era and the age of sound in terms of financing, which just about affects everything else, doesn't it? And in terms of where you can go, because you have to record wherever you're going, and in terms of screenwriting, because why write about it if it can't be filmed? One thing I remember from John Carpenter is, if it's not on the screen, I don't want to think about it. When Hollywood moves from silent films to talkies, we start to see films that are obsessed only with what you see on screen. You can't imagine anything else because you can't see anything else, and that's a fact. So in one sense, Hollywood becomes more dynamic because of the age of sound, but in another sense, they are becoming more restrictive. And for Keaton, this was very apparent. He had this fantastic run at United Artists where he ran his own studio even though he didn't own it. And he ran it and he could do whatever he wanted which wound up being a bad thing because he didn't matter how much something cost but his brother-in-law sure as hell did and he sold his contract to MGM. I saw a documentary on Buster that's on YouTube and it said Buster told everyone that it was the worst mistake that he ever made in his life going to MGM. But he didn't have a choice. It was like a ball player being traded from the Tigers to the Yankees at the time. There was nothing he could do. And all of a sudden no one trusts him anymore because of his track record at United Artists. And he had people looking over his shoulder. What are you doing? What are you spending? Why are you spending that? And Buster hated that. Absolutely hated it. His artistic freedom was put into a line, a black line, and it should never go red. And so his days were numbered because he just wasn't flexible enough to understand that side of the business, the business side of movies. And if movies are anything, it is a business. And even the movies you take into the bedroom, they're a business too now. Quite sad, isn't it? Now keep all of that in mind as we go into the finale of this film, which is the train wreck, because this scene, in all of its glory, is exactly what happened to Keaton. 
he staged magnificent things like the train wreck. And when you can't get things like that to pay off, then it's time to pay the fiddler. And if you're a little bit lost, let me catch you up real quick. This is the 1926 version of Baby Driver. This is the first chase scene. And just like James Bond has oil slick and rockets in his Aston Martin DB5, so too does Johnny have wood and kerosene to burn down this bridge. In effect, this does nothing special because it is on a bridge. He could have burned the section of track anywhere, but he chose to do it here. It might be more difficult to fight the fire on the bridge here, but nevertheless, it is here. And here is more nonsense. Johnny just climbed into the far end of the wood pile to pour the kerosene onto the wood. Dumb idea, but again, nonsense. And if you're listening to the new music written for the general, you can actually hear the gunshot go off in the music. It's quite fitting. Johnny doesn't understand why the Confederate pickets are shooting at him, and Annabelle tells him it's because he's dressed in a Union uniform, so Johnny changes because they're heading back behind their own lines. And I think that it's funny that when the gunshot goes off and he jumps to her, she's fine. She can take some gunfire, but not Johnny. He can take on a bear, but not a gun. And this whole scene with he and Annabelle, like they're playing house, that's all quite cute. And then you see him occasionally lose his temper at her, and it's an amazing back-and-forth scenario. And Obviously, she's playing quite a traditional role. But I see some non-traditional reactions in here. She bosses him around a bit. I find that very endearing. And then the audience would have found it humorous. And now we're finally back home, and this Confederate general comes out to see the general is back. And who is it, the yellow belly that we couldn't trust? And he brought back the kidnapped girl. What a change of events. And the old man looks like Robert E. Lee, and I am sure that is not an accident. And when I see some of these longer takes, I'm amazed. Particularly when I see Keaton in them. I'm amazed because the man supposedly smoked five packs a day. Just the sheer number of cigarettes is amazing. A hundred cigarettes in 15 or so hours. How can you concentrate on anything as complicated as making a movie when you're constantly smoking like that? The modern music for this dates from this century and unfortunately has a differing version of Dixie in it like this theme does now. And that seemed fine 10 years ago, but now it really bothers me. And here the Calvary is coming to save the day and reinforce every stereotype you've ever had about anything in your life. Now we're coming on fast to one of the most magnificent stunts ever performed on film in history. It's the locomotive crash. Bruckman was the mastermind behind the material selection. He's the one who suggested the Anderson raid, but it was Buster who came up with all of these gags, including the train wreck. Bruckman said 90% of them, of these gags, they were Keaton's. And as you watch this and you realize the scale of it, keep in mind that this was, wasn't something done on the fly. Three trains were used in this film. One of them was destroyed to great cost. There was no regular shooting script, only an outline that Buster and Bruckman planned day to day. Now, this outline, I'm sure, had to start way in advance. I remember the comedian Mike Myers was a guest of James Lipton's one time, the show Inside the Actor's Studio, and he talked about improvisation. 
and he had a typical answer to a question at the end of the interview. You have to watch what you improvise. You can't just say, I want 50 chickens on set because someone has to find the 50 chickens, which means a Hollywood animal service most likely. Where are you going to keep them? Who is going to feed them? And then clean up the chicken shit. How much noise is that going to make on set? And how many days are you going to need them for? You need to work on that budget. Keep all of that in mind when you watch this mind-blowing shot. It really takes your breath away. It's amazing to watch, and then it's amazing to watch. The budget for the general was $415,000, which is about twice as much as any other Keaton film. And that one shot cost $60,000. That is a huge chunk of the budget, but it didn't have to be that expensive. Keaton and Bruckman drove up the budget by shooting effectively without a script. Day-to-day activities do that. They cause delays, and there were tons of delays on this film. If you ever get a chance, watch the making of Cleopatra on that special edition. Amazing stuff. That film was greatly delayed, and it almost killed 20th Century Fox as a studio because they threw the script out, and they were going day-to-day. It's an amazing film that was actually salvaged out of that catastrophe. And speaking of catastrophes... Let's watch this one. It should land at or about the one hour, eight minute mark. One hour, eight minute, 30 second mark. And instead of damn Yankees, it's dumb Yankees thinking that they could cross the bridge. And all of these officers are made to look like idiots. They must have had a two-camera setup because watch this shot here and there's another shot at 90 degrees to the left. Here it is. Sweet Jesus. Steam. It cost so much to clean up the wreckage that Keaton just left the Texas and the river. And it became a local curiosity for years until it was salvaged for metal during the metal shortage in the Second World War. And when he shot this, of course, everyone who was around showed up to see it as if it were the Battle of Bull Run. And some say there were a thousand people or more there. Now look at this shot. So the narrative is a bit reversed in this, and a battle is added. Yay for the South. Or not. As I'm putting this podcast together, there are white supremacists marching in Charlottesville, North Carolina, so I'm pretty sensitive to the background of the story right now. I also just read Colin Powell's autobiography, and he said a lot of very powerful things in it about how he admired Thomas Jefferson, but he didn't let him off the hook. And you could judge him in full, and you could admire what he did, and not let how what Jefferson thought of slaves affect the reality of what he said and wrote about freedom. I think General Powell is right about that, as he is on most things probably, and I don't want to posit the idea that because Keaton chose this story that he was necessarily a racist. If you look at the general, you'll be very hard-pressed to find a single African-American in this film. And this is a film that takes place in the South. And I know they shot it in Oregon, but that's no excuse. And you can't say, well, it's a battle film. There's plenty of scenes in towns and scenes that depict rural life in the South here. 
And let's not pin the R card on Keaton, but let's just say that he was a man of his times. He had opinions of those times that were widely shared. And we all look at the Democratic Party in the 1930s as being the cornerstone of liberalism that saved this country. And yet that was the same liberal party that refused to pass a lynching ban. So what I'm saying is shades of gray. And there's enough gray to go around here, no pun intended. But it does make me uncomfortable, which is why I'm spending so much time on it. Much like my point, his sword flies off the handle. And he almost gets shot in the ass. And as I said before, when his United Artist days were over, he went to MGM, but MGM was not known for comedy, and they really didn't understand what made Buster funny, or what he needed, or what they had to give him to get that comedy out. They didn't, did not know how to support him, so that was a short, painful lesson. It was downhill real fast. Soon after that, he started doing talkies because the sound age was coming and that made things worse. There were a lot of audiences that were really confused at why Buster wasn't funny at MGM, but then they heard him talk and man, that really had a disconnect. And that's not an original story. Lots of actors could not cut it in the age of sound. You don't have to see Singing in the Rain to understand that. Some just didn't have it and didn't make it to sound and Buster was one of them. Now, he did have a bit of a comeback when MGM started putting him in movies as Jimmy Durante's sidekick, but he was still second fiddle. And after so many years of being the lead, you can see how that really deflated him. And that happened as he was getting more and more promiscuous and having problems with his wife and getting absolutely schnookered on set or offset or wherever. He became essentially a drunk Amazing scene there at the dam and the rising water. Alcoholics usually become addicts because they lose control of their life. But by becoming alcoholics, addicts are never able to successfully regain control of their life. And so it was for Buster. I don't know how true the story is, but supposedly he had a cabal of friends who got together and restrained him, and supposedly they put him in a straitjacket and they committed him to an asylum to dry him out. And it worked for a while, but I don't know how true that story is. Apparently he got out around 1935 and he had a couple of drinks, but then didn't have another drink for five years. Then it was another struggle. A lot of people who deal with the film spend a lot of time on Keaton now as he's holding the dreaded Confederate flag in a scene that mimics Mel Gibson's The Patriot. And Keaton has become more than nostalgia because we didn't grow up with him, so there is no nostalgia. But there is an appreciation for doing so much. Doing so much and surviving is one thing. He also was very good at special effects, and I forget what film he did. But it was one of the first in which the main actor played all the roles. He effectively cast himself as everyone. Then he double exposed the film, which effectively meant that you had one shot at getting the take right. And that was it. And the pressure was on. And he did amazing things that are really appreciated now. We forget that Steamboat, Steamboat Bill Jr. lost a quarter million dollars at the box office and effectively put him in the poorhouse. No one remembers that anymore. Nobody cares. But they remember on the front of the train in the general, they remember him standing in just in the right spot when the house face comes down. And we think, Jesus, 
Those were the days before safety. Certainly no OSHA back then. And here's the cream on the pie. The Yankee General is captured and Johnny earns his stripes. Or bars, rather. So the legacy of the General is two-sided. On the first side, we see this amazing movie that film directors still watch today and go, Jesus Christ, how did he do that? Particularly the scene where the battle is happening in the background and he's chopping wood on the train. And The General is shortlisted for being one of the greatest silent films ever made. It's always in the top 10 of any film list that's ever made. It's usually in the top 100. The AFI has been very good to the general. And then on the other hand, as you watch it in Marvel, you know that he lost everything with this movie. He has a 10,000 square foot house in Beverly Hills. He lost that in a divorce. He lost his job at United Artists. He wasn't very good with numbers. He was unable to keep his finances together. His ex-wife took the kids and took his name off of their birth certificates. He got married a second time and that sent him straight to the bottom of a bottle. Eventually he was committed to the asylum, which I said. This overshadows a lot of success with the general and Steamboat Bill Jr. But within a few years, Keaton was working for $100 a week. And that was still a lot of money for those days, but considering what his income used to be, that was just not enough. The final joke here. Is that your uniform? And Johnny thinks this is for the general, but it's really for him. And before we get too down on Keaton and talk about him as if this was the only thing he ever did, let's remember that he was lucky. He had some really good everlasting films and a great career. He managed to get sober. And let's not forget that on the other end, Clyde Bruckman borrowed Keaton's gun and shot himself in January 1955 with a 45. And Buster lived on, and he worked for the Marx Brothers and Red Skelton. And he was reportedly one of the greatest bridge players in the world, and he would play for money. And in the 50s, and later in the 60s, he became ever more popular. He became a staple on TV, and they redid many of his old skits live, which, if you think about it, was just his vaudeville career all over again. And he began to gain another audience. Older people remembered him, and they liked him, and they didn't care what happened in 20 years before. And the kicker was that the actor James Mason bought Keaton's old house in Beverly Hills, and in that house he found an old trunk, and in that trunk was a huge amount of Keaton's films, and he sold them to Keaton for very cheap, and they went back into circulation, and it was just a saving grace to him. Not just for Keaton's career, but for our film heritage. And I'm sure that persuaded the Academy Awards of Arts and Sciences to give him a Life Achievement Award in 1959. And that's 30 years after The General. He did a lot of color films, Beach Party and all of that. And when The General was re-released for the 50th anniversary, it finally turned a profit and it's been making money ever since. Silent films are so special because only about 23% of them survive. Most of them were destroyed and recycled to make more celluloid. He was well-loved, and Orson Welles, for instance, thought he was just amazing, so like Johnny Gray gets to stand here and be proud of himself, and we should hope that Buster had a moment like that. We hope that he got to stand this proud and and 
be amazed at what he accomplished because in reality film as a whole but silent film especially would be really lacking without Buster Keaton in it and off they go saluting or so you think the final gag the end Thanks for watching The General with me today. I hope you found this interesting whether you watched it with the commentary on or just listened in your car. The Super 70 Podcast is brought to you by Dylan Davis. That's me. You can find me, my books, and my blog at www.thatdylandavis.com. If you disagree with the interpretation of this film, you can always rant in an email at thatdylandavis at gmail.com. If you liked what you heard, please find my podcast on iTunes where you can rate it and leave a review. All music on the Super 70 podcast is written and recorded by either Rosalind McPhail or Joshua Cunningham. You can find both of them on SoundCloud.com. Thanks again for listening to the Super 70 podcast. Join me next time as we dance in the money. <laughs>